0: Welcome to All Things Alt Tech, a podcast about the digital ecosystem of today and alternative technologies of tomorrow. If you wanna get the latest on tech, whether that be social networks, cryptocurrencies, gizmos or gadgets, scams or scandals, this podcast is for you. If you wanna hear about privacy and free speech issues, or you just want some general banter on the creepy big tech industry, well, you've come to the right place. So strap in and enjoy. Welcome to the podcast. Today is November 7th, 2020. And today I want to talk about big tech and how it's become the new Ministry of Truth. Because yet again, fact is stranger than fiction, or at least as strange. And I want to look at some of the parallels between big tech and the Ministry of Truth from Orwell's 1984. I also want to take a look at the Ministry of Truth and the Soviet news industry, because there are many similarities between the two. But first off, I want to talk about the big tech hearing that took place in late October. Because there were some interesting pieces in there. So if you don't remember, Jack Dorsey, Zuckerberg, and Sundar Pichai were all summoned. I think Jack and Zuck in part because of their egregious censorship of the Hunter Biden bombshell. Now specifically, I mean, both Twitter and Facebook had decided that the laptop from hell had to be memory-holed, that Hunter Biden's laptop had to be hidden from the collective consciousness of America, and that was apparently particularly important as we entered the election season. Now, Jack said something interesting. He said that removing Section 230 would destroy the internet, and I think I kind of agree with that, actually, because if you don't know what Section 230 is, It basically means that as an online platform, you can't be held responsible for what is said by other users on your site. But on the flip side, it also means that if you go ahead and fiddle with people's speech on your platform, well, then you own that speech, including any consequences and including any defamation and slander and so forth that's taking place on your platform. So I agree with Jack, let's not repeal 230, but I would say let's enforce it. Now, if you run a website, and let's say you were liable for every piece of information that's on it. Well, there would be no internet or there certainly wouldn't be any kind of websites with any form of meaningful discourse going on. It would be just be too risky. Now, Jack, he spoke about how they need to overhaul the appeals process, how did they needed more transparency and all that stuff. But, you know, it's all lip service. Let's face it here, because... Twitter got caught, yet again, they got caught red-handed censoring a critical piece of information from a legitimate news source, no less, and at a very critical moment in time. So they're not going to be overhauling anything that would endanger the facade of the left, let's face it. Now, Dorsey, he also spoke about why they label tweets, such as the president's tweets. And of course, you know, this labeling, it's historically one-sided and at this point it is blatantly agenda-driven, I think. Because Twitter don't seem to have any problem with, you know, the Chinese Communist Party tweeting about, you know, their hostility to the US military. In fact, it took them 2 months to really address those tweets. They didn't have any problem with the Ayatollah of Iran denying the Holocaust or wiping Israel off the map or anything like that. So when it comes to the so-called policy enforcement, Twitter are a bunch of bumbling dweebs. I mean, it's downright comical. It is a farce because, I mean, they don't have the capacity or the technology or the staff or resources to enforce the type of hate speech that they aspire to control. So I think in the instances where they do control speech, you know, it's always about stifling the right. That's what it comes down to. Now, Jack, he also spoke about potentially using alternative algorithms to filter their feeds. Well, here's a start. How about making Twitter open source so we can really see what's going on there? Or how about just letting users filter their own feeds if they really have to? Now, there's one guy who really grilled Jack hard, and that was Ted Cruz. And it was actually really good, albeit a little bit emotional there. But he did get straight to the point. He did get straight to the fact that Twitter... We're preventing users from sharing New York Post's material, from sharing the Hunter Biden laptop material. Now, Jack, he kind of countered this with, you know, Twitter's hacked materials policy. But hold on, what was actually hacked about Hunter Biden's laptop? And besides, New York Post, they clarified where this material came from. Now, Jack kind of retorted with, yeah, well, the, the, the material here, it showed screenshots of personal material and so forth. But I mean, I think it's pretty clear that that's just Twitter's excuse here. I mean, it's not like Twitter can monitor the nature of all the various documents that are published on the site. So what Twitter did here, it was a redaction. It was censorship that's completely politically motivated. And, you know, Jack said in his typical droning and sleepy voice that basically he recognizes an error. And he said that, well, New York Post can, they can post anything they want from now on. They're not suspended. But Cruz really saw through the BS here and he pointed out something very important, namely that they could only post if they went back and redacted the earlier posts. In other words, they had to bend their knee to Twitter's dictate or they wouldn't get to speak. And Dorsey kind of tried to slither his way around this fact, but Cruz kept underscoring it multiple times. And it, it really is an absurd fact that needs emphasizing. It's incredibly dystopian. And by the way, Just examining Dorsey's logic a little bit here, you know, that they don't allow hacked materials or personally identifiable information and that kind of stuff. Well, it is also a crime to publish someone's tax returns against their will. But Twitter obviously had no problem with having Trump's tax return tweets trending for days and days and days. So it's kind of laughable to hear about Jack's, you know, this realization that they need to earn more trust and hear all the concerns and so forth. No, they don't. They just need to stop pushing their own political agenda. Take their thumb off the scale. That's what they need to do. So this is not complicated at all. There's no error made here. There's no kind of comedy of errors. It's an outright decision to stifle speech that's uncomfortable to their political favorites. That's what it comes down to here. Now, Zuck, he spoke about how they should not be preventing new ideas from taking shape. But that's exactly what they're doing. I mean, he kind of spoke to these ongoing threats to the election. But I think what he really means here is the ongoing threats to the Democrats' chances of toppling Trump. Because, you know, Facebook, they're not in a position to sit there and sift out the truths from the untruths in real time, you know, in the middle of the election. Not going to happen. And also, just think about this. If ISIS can run group after group after group on Facebook, and Facebook can't even stop that, how could they possibly mitigate false information on election day in real time? It's absurd. So today we're kind of having this debate as to whether big tech is censoring or influencing or hampering free speech when it is obvious that it's happening. And this situation is really kind of what harkens back to 1984, George Orwell's novel, 1984, that is. Because in 1984, in this kind of society that it depicted, there were several ministries in the government. And one of the ministries was the Ministry of Truth. And of course, this is a total misnomer because in reality, what it did was it served as the opposite. It was responsible for the falsification of events. So they would doctor all the historical records to show this kind of government approved version of what was happening and what had happened. And so the Ministry of Truth then, it's, it's involved in the news media, entertainment, arts and books and everything. And it kind of plays an important role in, the, in, in changing history really and in changing the language and the words in articles and so forth. And it's done so that, you know, Big Brother always is seen as favorable, as infallible. Now, in in the book, 1984, people seem to accept this as normalcy, even though it was all completely absurd. Even as the reader, you kind of accept the the situation as normalcy as you go along. But people, so people didn't just kind of stop what they were doing and say, hey, wait a second, this is all BS. None of this makes any sense. It's, It's all a lie. No, people kind of played along with it because... Well, I guess because other people played along with it. It's this idea of a consensus reality. And I think a very similar picture to this has existed in real life, a sort of ministry of truth. Because in 1912, the Soviet newspaper industry, basically, they created Pravda, which is a publication, and it literally means truth. So it, it didn't actually start as an outright political publication. In, it was more of a journal a social life journal to to start off with. But Lenin decided that the party needed some kind of a voice in the news industry and that Pravda would convey the official party line to the people. And again, similarly to in 1984 and the Ministry of Truth, Pravda had nothing to do with the truth. It was called the truth in a perfectly Orwellian fashion, but it was basically just the official party line, party version of events. And of course... All the Soviet newspapers, they were distributed by, you know, government administrations. And they, the business model, as it were, they had, uh, they had three streams of revenue. So it's, it's a similar picture to the legacy media that remains today, or it's even pretty similar to the online news, if you think about it. So they had, of course, subscription revenues, they had ad revenues, and then they had revenues that were basically subsidies from the various parent organizations, So those subsidies, which would, you know, by extension, come from the government, they would cover all the important, really substantial meaty costs, you know, building plants and making sure that you could extend the circulation and so forth. And come to think of it, this is pretty similar to how government in the Western world funded the origins of the online infrastructure, you know, how government still funds key aspects of it, while it's the kind of private players that produce the media. Now. In the Soviet times, though, Pravda was, was distributed across the entire Soviet Union in one morning. So, And this is actually an enormous feat because this was over 100 years ago. Now, of course, it was the establishment that enabled this. It was the Soviet government that enabled this. And of course, it wasn't for the benefit of society, of course. It was out of this desire to spread the party gospel. Now... Then at the beginning of the 1920s, roughly, the Soviet newspapers had come to be staffed by journalists who weren't all that educated and they, they really didn't really have much, you know, journalistic skills. In other words, it was exactly like today. Now, in all fairness, though, the Soviet press corps, they did try to raise the standards of the press, but um, at the same time, they also had to maintain this strong kind of party line amongst the journalists. And here's the thing, I mean, good professional journalism is all about maintaining objectivity and transparency and outlining any bias or conflict of interests or anything like that. So by definition, this wasn't really a feasible initiative from the very get-go. I mean, you can't be a journalist and an activist at the same time. And I think this exact dilemma, it exists today, you know, in the likes of CNN and CNBC and everywhere, really. And in fact, I mean, that exact dilemma exists also amongst the publishers of information, and that would be Facebook and Twitter and Google. So it's a, in essence, you're looking at the same exact conflict that we have today. And it's also why we see all these fireworks in, in this hearing that I spoke about in the beginning. Because at the end of the day, you can't be an impartial, objective journalist or an unbiased publisher and also push your agenda at the same time. Now... Getting back to the Soviet era though, the journalists there, they did kind of pride themselves in their supposed professionalism. And they also tried to sort of accept the Bolshevik agenda at the same time. And so throughout the 20s, the State Institute of Journalism, they tried to kind of produce some kind of a more standardized curriculum to try and raise the standard of, of journalism and also push the, the party line. But it simply just proved to be impossible. So finally, then in the 30s, They threw in the towel and they ended all these drives for for professional journalism. And they threw out a whole bunch of their key figures and just decided, you know what? We're just going to hit our propaganda goals. That's what we're going to do. And I think we're at that stage of throwing principles to the wind today. I mean, if you look at how journalists and the news media behaves right now, how Facebook and Twitter behaves also, and for example, how they censored this very critical Hunter Biden's laptop story or for that matter, how they called Joe Biden as a very early winner in some states while they were just sitting on Trump's wins when they were quite obvious. Now, I think the the censorship of the election developments, they're quite peculiar because, let's face it, there were some pretty bizarre poll numbers going on, some pretty egregious ones, I would even say. But now, even just talking about these issues, talking about the fact that we might have problems with the uh, with the election, it's, it might get you shadow banned. It might get you banned. So, for example, there was this group on Facebook called Stop the Steal. And they had amassed almost 400,000 members, actually. And that was virtually overnight. But Facebook just shut it down because it was creating real-world events. That was the problem. Now, I mean, creating events for BLM protests in the middle of a pandemic, that was apparently fine. You know, Or organizing to burn down neighborhoods, no problem. But real-world events, dangerous real-world events to protest election fraud, not so. Now, I mean, I can't say just how widespread the election fraud may have been or how consequential it might have been. But I would say that preventing discourse about election fraud is not a healthy thing to do. And it's not Facebook's place to do so. But, you know, even if there was misinformation being spread, you know, on the various Facebook pages or on Twitter... It's not up to big tech to ban Americans' attempts to assemble. I mean, preventing this is basically a violation of the First Amendment principles, I guess. Now, all that said, you know, I think getting back to journalism here, there are some journalists, there are many journalists, in fact, who do maintain integrity. And just to kind of rattle off a few names off the top of my head here, you have Glenn Greenwald, you have Matt Taibbi, you have... Aaron Maté, Whitney Webb, and Tim Poole and all those folks. Now, I don't personally agree with them politically, but that's not important here because, as I say, integrity is what matters. And, you know, people like these, they dare to call out big tech shenanigans or election shenanigans or hypocrisy on all sides. And I think that's a good proxy for credibility right there. You know, this refusal to join a team and just pledge blind allegiance, which is what the legacy news media is doing. Now, hey, getting back to Pravda, it's still alive to this day, actually. It's over a hundred years old and it's still led by, you know, what is basically pro-Kremlin editors. But it's, of course, totally insignificant today and it's basically just a shadow of its former self. I mean, actually, it's now effectively just a tabloid. And uh, come to think of it, that's what legacy media has had to resort to, to cling on to some sort of readership. I mean, look at... Look at the legacy media in the West right now. It's uh, getting ever clickbaitier, it's losing integrity by the day, and it's getting more and more desperate to kind of hang on to some kind of readership. So if history repeats, that may well be where today's fabricated media ends up. If uh, if fact follows fiction, however, and let's say the ministry of truth prevails, well, then I guess we'll all end up as uh, soulless puppets, you know, no longer thinking individually and forever loving Big Brother. I, for one, hope that history repeats rather than fact-following fiction, but we'll see. What do you think? Who are some of the truth-sayers still out there? What did you think of the mainstream media reporting, by the way? And are you ready to throw in the towel and love big tech and CNN? Let me know what you think. You can email me on podcast at nyman.media. That's podcast at n-y-m-a-n dot media. And as always, thanks for listening. Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening. If you want to comment on an episode, suggest a topic, or you want to support the podcast, visit nyman.media podcast. That's N-Y-M-A-N podcast. You can also help out by leaving a review wherever you're listening from. And thanks for listening.